and welcome to the last home cinema podcast here on AV Forums. I'm Phil Hinton and joining me for this edition is Ed Selly. Hi, Ed. Hola. And AV Forums assistant editor, Steve Withers. Hi, Steve. Bonjour. So let's start. Uh, this is the last home cinema podcast, a podcast which we started back in November 2006 and which has seen many memorable interviews, covered many major launches of cutting edge technology and has hopefully provided a few laughs along the way. I guess, guys, looking back, um, I've been here for the full seven years. Um, some of you yeah, not less as murder, Phil. <laughs> some of you not that long. But looking back, I had a quick look through the podcast forum. Every podcast is in there if anybody's interested. I went back through there, just trying to think what my personal highlight of the home cinema podcast was. Um, and other than presenting it for the last seven years, I think the interview which sticks out for me was the one that we did with Tomlinson Holman back in December 2007. Tom invented THX. He was the guy behind that back in the early 80s. He developed the dubbing studios, Skywalker Sound, and the whole of Hollywood have basically based their sound mixing, sound recording studios around what he came up with when he invented that. And obviously he then moved on to other companies. One of them was a company called Odyssey, which he helped set up with a bunch of students at one of the universities where he, where he taught, and they came up with this system. And you can now find that in lots of amplifiers, uh, lots of AVRs uh, now has that technology on board. So I guess, you know, being a home cinema fan from the uh, the late 80s into the 90s and then the noughties, uh, Tom Holman was, was one of those heroes. Uh, he was somebody that we all knew about and getting to speak to him. And it was an hour-long interview. was probably the highlight for me of, uh, of all the interviews that we've done. We've done some cracking interviews over the last seven years. Uh, but that was definitely one of my highlights. Steve, you got any highlights? I've got two, actually, Phil. One as a listener and one as a participant. Um, uh, the first podcast I ever listened to, it was one you did from the Bristol show, probably back in 2007. Uh, I was living in Hong Kong at the time, but you interviewed a friend of mine uh, at the show and he told me about it. So I, I listened to that podcast and it was the first time I'd ever even uh, really heard of AB Forums. Um, so that's like the first podcast uh, you know I was, I'd ever listened to. First time I ever had any contact with AV Forums. Little did I know back then where it was going to lead. Um, in terms of as a participant, uh, the one that sticks in my mind is the one we recorded uh, at the end of uh, CES. I think it was two years ago, where uh, you know we've been on, on the show all week. Uh, we've been shooting video, we've been up editing. We really hadn't had much rest, and uh, we got to the end of the end of the sort of five six. Like, it would have been about a week, seven days. And then uh, we thought, oh, we need to record the Home Cinema podcast. So uh, we ended up, and I should point out, stress here, though we were sharing a room, we were in two separate beds. Uh, and you were on one bed and I was on the other. And we were both just utterly shattered and we couldn't even stand. And there was this, mem- this memory of you <laughs> recording your side of the conversation, <laughs> holding a microphone and lying on your back on the bed. On the, on the so uh, that's my lasting memory um, of the podcast, I think. A prone fill. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there was no alcohol involved either, which was the no, same no, thing. stone cold sober. And <laughs> That's where you were going wrong, Jen. You know, I yeah. would have been a much funnier podcast. Well, you, you, you see, Ed, we get this accusation all the time. Oh, you're going to Las Vegas, so you're going for CS. Yeah, you're going to be out partying all the time and all the rest of it. Little do people know, you spend eight hours at the show floor and then another eight hours in a hotel room while everybody else, all the other journalists, all the other attendees. They're all out, you know, enjoying themselves at all these parties and, and dinners and all the rest of it. And we're stuck in a hotel room editing videos. It's uh, <laughs> it's a bit like being a diabetic in a sweet shop. Basically. Uh, yeah, that's probably that's probably a good way of putting it. Uh, Ed, um, 
you've been on the forums since 2003, is that right? Yeah, I'm a week away from my 10th anniversary, which oh, is both great and, and horrifying at the same time. Well, yes, we'll, thanks. We'll buy you a cake for that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I guess it's in terms cake. in terms of podcasts, we're only talking about um, 12 to 18 months that you've been on the podcast, but. In terms of the the AV forums podcasts, the home cinema side of things, you got any highlights? Whether you were on the podcast or ironically, there is a highlight from from when I was on the other side of it. You interviewed me at one of the What Hi-Fi shows back when it was at the Novotel in Hammersmith in um, two thousand. It would have been two thousand and six, maybe two thousand and seven. Um, and I suppose like the record can state that you interviewed me at, at a point of, of of some distress as I as I had consumed some alcohol the previous evening um and um it was a fairly airless and lightless room that i was trapped in that occasion and i just remember listening back to it and i i thought you were very commendable in how you didn't mention the sort of obvious distress in both my voice and tone um as i sort of manfully tried to field questions with anything other than uh so that that was that was <laughs> actually one of the very first things i have ever had anything to do with the podcast and since then it's always the show pop uh, anything we're talking about with shows and events it's just a much more lively and dynamic way of discussing uh what's gone on um after that point than 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 sort of just trying to type it up so pretty much everything we've done with the shows uh the aftermath of the siesta um obviously uh, uh, when i went over to IFA, my first IFA in ages um and and other show events which obviously hopefully will keep going forward from here but i i've really enjoyed uh, all the bits to do with that it's just just to me the best way of um sort of discussing what we've actually seen and experienced at the shows well you were lucky with that interview because that was before we started with the videos videos didn't come till late 2007 so 2008 so you were lucky there that it was audio only um, yeah <laughs> and that's one of, that's one of the beauties of the podcast it's audio only we can sit here in a box of shots and nobody knows any different so there you go my working day <laughs> <laughs> it's a mental image that I, I really don't want to <laughs> what, what has been seen. It was enough sharing a bedroom with you without having to uh, <laughs> listen to So, um, so anyway, it's sadly the, the last home cinema podcast, but fear not, we are ending the movies and home cinema editions of the podcast. Um, but we're also bringing in a new line of podcasts and. You lucky people are going to hear us every single week of the month. We start on the 3rd of July, so the podcast will be recorded on the Monday. It will go out every Wednesday. The only exception to that will be the Games Podcast, which will still go out on the 14th of every month. But we'll also have a, a member of the Games team on the weekly podcast. And Steve, tell us the reasoning behind going on to the weekly schedule. Well, I mean, we realised that one of the problems we have with monthly podcasts is that obviously they don't tend to be that current, particularly with things like movies, where we're talking about a film maybe that none of us have seen yet and doesn't come out for another three weeks, or we've just seen it and the podcast the podcast doesn't come out for another two weeks. It just means that it's not very current. And there's so much happening in the tech world on a daily basis that you know we could easily do and are now going to do a weekly podcast, which gives us a chance to be very current, to talk about breaking news that week, to talk about the new movies that are out that week, the new Blu-rays that have hit the market that week, the new games that are out that week, um, and any other tech that comes along that might be of interest. And I think that way it'll it'll um, you know, make the, the podcast much more um, relevant in terms of you know being up to date with, with the current affairs. Plus, it also means that we can get a bigger group of people together, because unfortunately what we've had problems with is getting, you know, like today there's three of us, maybe there'll be two or three people on the movies podcast. It's always more fun with a big gang 
And um, I think one of the reasons why the Games Podcast is so successful is because uh, they do have a nice big gang of them every, every month. Uh, makes it much, much more entertaining. Uh, so we'll have a bigger group of people uh, talking about very current things, making it much more interesting, hopefully, and much more up to date. Uh, and that's the general idea. So it does mean, unfortunately, we have to do it every single week. Uh, pressure's on. But uh, hopefully it'll definitely be worth listening to. Now, one of the things with that is that during the year, we do find ourselves in very strange places sometimes, in some weeks. So you could find the podcast coming to you from some pretty exotic places, <laughs> depending on where we go. And that's assuming that we do uh, continue to go to these places for product launches and so on. But like Steve was saying, it's going to focus it a lot more. And Ed, I'm thinking back in the only year that is as exciting and um, has such big prospects in terms of technology, whether that be movies, home cinema, technology, otherwise... The last time we had this kind of excitement was around about 2005, 2006, 2007, that sort of sweet period where we had HD DVD, Blu-ray, the PS3 and the Xbox 360. And funnily enough, we find ourselves in a situation now in 2013 where we have the Xbox One, the PS4 uh, and 4K coming. Um, So again, we're finding ourselves in a market that seems to be picking up and there's news almost on a daily basis now of companies releasing this, that, the next thing, which all ties into these new products. Yeah, it's it's really, really refreshing after, as you say, something of a barren period where, yeah, we've got devices which are going to have a meaningful effect both inside the sort of specialist end of the industry where we are, but just as, as a whole wider construct. Um, I mean, obviously, I've been following the the console launches at arm's length, if you will, um, as I'm officially old these days, and I don't 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 necessarily think I'm going to jump in straight away. But even so, it's amazing to watch the the evolution in both devices, and even with Microsoft taking aim firmly at their feet and, and opening fire, there's still, you know, a huge amount of sort of buzz about both both devices and and working out which one is sort of going to be the better sort of digital life hub or whatever the, uh, the phrase I saw banded around somewhere on the web the other day. And it's, you know, coupled with 4K, it, there's just, just a huge amount to, to, you know, to look forward to. And again, what's most exciting is that the pricing – that this that this equipment is kicking off at. I mean, we were discussing last podcast for 4K for 4K. Yes, it's still a not inconsequential amount of money, but all the signs are there that it's going to be something that gets affordable quickly, and that makes it even more exciting. That you know we're going to be seeing a wholesale revolution in the equipment that we use and the, and the media we're using on it, and it's not just going to be for the select few to to, to participate. Hopefully, we all can reasonably quickly. And Steve, the the interesting thing when you look at the consoles. You you're looking at the specifications and so on that's in there. Now, hands up from me, I'm, I'm not really a gamer. However, I have gone over the coverage. I, I watched the the games team uh, put their stuff together as, as the events were happening. I watched the live streams. And it's really quite interesting to see the, the specification of the equipment, what these boxes are going to be capable of. Lots of smart TV technology, certainly on the Microsoft side of things. But what's amazing me is the fact that we're getting all this technology coming in in these boxes, and they're actually cheaper than some of the most popular smartphones on the market. I, I've never ceased to amaze me um, how cheap consumer electronics have become. Over, I mean, we, you know, we're talking about 4K for 4K, but if you went back 10 years to when you started doing these podcasts, um, you know, a really high quality system, the best you could imagine getting, would have cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds, and the level of quality you would have got 
is nowhere near as good as it is now for a few thousand pounds in terms of uh, you know high definition. Now we're moving into 4K, uh, lossless audio. I mean the, the the level of quality for the cost involved is just incredible. I mean it just you know I, I think back now about the amount of money I've spent over the years on. You know, stuff that I've just flogged on the classifieds eventually because it's become it's been left behind by the constant um, you know, driver technology, and and you know I could almost weep at some of the, the amount of money that's been generally wasted. Well, not wasted, but you know it's kind of gone gone by the wayside over the years. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally. I mean, it's it's quite funny that um, you know. The, the, one of the reasons that the Xbox the Xbox One uh, appears to be more expensive than the PS4. Uh, is the obviously the inclusion of the Connect, um, you know, which is part of their whole drive to create something that's more like a, a smart TV, easier to interact with, and aimed more, I guess, at, at ne- not necessarily gamers. Whereas Sony's uh, PS4 is, is is considerably cheaper. Uh, and obviously, if you think back to uh, 2006, it was the other way around. It was the Xbox was kind of the slightly cheaper gamer uh, console. And the PS3 was massively overspecced, very expensive, even though even at that price, Sony was still losing a fortune on every one they sold as a kind of Trojan horse to get uh, um, Blu-ray into the, into the market, into the marketplace, into people's homes. Um, it's kind of gone a, a complete about face now. And you've got the gamers who obviously um, are very anti-DRM and, and Microsoft in particular in their plans to make it very difficult to sell secondhand games. Whereas Sony, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to do that. And they've come out with, this is the good guys, you know, and all the gamers think, oh, well, good old Sony, <laughs> great, cheaper console, you know, get, Designed mostly for gaming, uh, and uh, you're not going to uh, cripple the third, the second-hand gaming market. So, uh, yeah, it's quite a strange turn of events, really. The other flip of the coin is with with this technology as well, and it's something we've discussed in lots of home cinema podcasts. Definitely in the last couple of years, we've we've constantly discussed about streaming technology and streaming content. And this is something that that both Sony and Microsoft have taken on board with their consoles, one more than the other. But they're both capable of being online. They're both capable of, of running the various, what is it called? It's Microsoft Live and Sony's version, I always forget, but yeah. PlayStation Network or whatever it is. You look at Sony and their push for 4K, and one of the things that they keep hinting at is the fact that they see it as a streaming service. Um, and looking at the PS4 and its capability of streaming 4K content, Microsoft have, have been quite quiet on that front. I understand that it will do 4K. It is capable of it, but... It looks like Sony, from a gaming point of view, have wrapped up, but they could also wrap up the home home entertainment side as well. As not massive gamers ourselves, you and I were very interested in what they announced in terms of its video capability, and specifically whether it could play 4K. I was kind of hoping it was going to be some sort of disc system announced at the same time, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, but you're right. I mean, right now, I think Sony are, are very well positioned. I mean, I mean, unless they're losing a fortune on these, you know, <laughs> at that price point, I think they're going to, I mean, absolutely storm it come November when these, these things hit the market. Um, I think from a gamer's perspective, that they've got them on their, on their side. I think from a pure AV perspective, uh, being Sony as opposed to Microsoft, they've probably got an advantage anyway, but also being the only company, the only CE company, that is kind of central to the whole 4K world. I mean, they don't just make equipment, as in uh, CE equipment. They make uh, 4K cameras that are used in film production. They own a studio. They own, you know, um, uh, um, a recording studio, you know, a label. Um, they're one of the few, and I suppose this was their plan all along, but I mean, they actually are a company that covers the entire gamut from production to, to delivery. Um, and so from a 4K perspective, they're obviously the best positioned of all the manufacturers, I think, in that respect. Um, so I, I think, yeah, they could definitely, um, they could totally knock us out of the park um, at the end of this year. 
compared to Microsoft. I, mean, I know I've got my order in for the PS4, and as I said, I'm not even a big gamer, but uh, I want one. It is funny, Ed, how these things always seem to come around. And I hinted at the fact there, you know, back 2006, when the podcast took off originally, we were talking about HD, DVD, and Blu-ray. There was a format war. Now it looks like we're, we're having a, a war of the consoles this time around. But we've also got new technology in the terms of 4K coming out. It seems to be that the market is kind of, after the, the recession and so on, it's kind of boosted itself up again. But looking back at those days, HD, DVD and, and Blu-ray, I mean, do you guys remember the format war? Do you, do you have any stories around that? From my perspective, uh, obviously I was still working for a manufacturer at the time. Um, it was, I think, do you know what? HD, DVD and Blu-ray was the last format war uh, where I believe that there was any danger that either side had a chance of winning, although it became clear painfully quickly that that actually Blu-ray had had more 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 in the in the magazine than um, than HDD. But um, yeah, effectively, what alarmed us was that um, there were within a very short time of HD DVD being announced, there were all sorts of OEM solutions being banded around, but they were all from manufacturers who or salute companies where we, we were sort of concerned that their pedigree through DVD wasn't that great. Whereas all of the companies who had a, a much more solid reputation for DVD production um, were, were, were sort of holding out for Blu-ray. And that seemed to be an indicator to us at least that, um, yeah, we, we sort of, we sort of had an inkling of where it would go. But even so, when, I mean, if you recall, HD DVD had all the early, all the early running, it was encoding films better. The pricing was better. The players operated better. And, it, it, it seemed for a stage that like it might ha- might sort of go one way or the other, but when you look at the consoles by comparison, um, you know ultimately you've got two. It, it, it's not sort of spreading the technology out. Both neither side can lose in the way that they need other people to come on board. I mean, obviously they need games developers, but that seems to be a, a, a different different way of developing things. Um, so because of that. I, you know, it, I don't think that there's the stakes are still very high for Sony and Microsoft. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't polarise the industry in the same way that the old the older format wars did. And there are, you know, that's that's good and bad. It, it's good in so much as it, it means that small companies don't have to risk everything deciding what on earth they're going to do. Um, it, it's it's bad that it obviously reduces sort of you know the the desire for the manufacturers to to, to push the envelope and and innovate their way to a to a position of monopoly. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but. Um, I, I mean, I think that was the Blu-ray, HD, DVD was probably the the last format war where it was there, there was real, really high stakes about yeah. who, who was going to come out the other end of it. That was my most favourite CES ever, and and it was my first CES. Uh, I had a sneak peek of uh, the eighth generation, uh, sorry, ninth generation of the Pioneer Kuro uh, behind closed doors. I was at the Toshiba press conference where. That poor lass, I forget her name, she was head of the product development at the time, had to get up and apologise and say that HD DVD was dead. And it was quite funny on the show floor because HD DVD stand and Blu-ray stand were right next door to each other and uh, I have a clear picture in my head that there was two people on the HD DVD stand and everybody else was round about the Blu-ray stand. And at that point you just knew, that's it, finished, gone. So that, that was probably the most interesting CES I've been to. There have been good ones but... Uh, that one, and we did a podcast, or I did a podcast from there. It it was it was just surreal, and I think at that moment in time, after that CES, things sort of died away because obviously HD DVD was finished, uh, Blu-ray was the new standard. 
So at that CES as well, there was uh, talk of OLED and a lot of companies saying that OLED was coming. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people promising that that was going to be the next big step in technology. And, you know, we were seeing designs from Pioneer of plasmas that were six millimeters and so on. But unfortunately, the year after that, everything just seemed to go to pot. Pioneer pulled out. Like I say, HD DVD disappeared, and then the financial crisis hit in 2008, and the word OLED was never heard again until 2010, and we're still talking OLED and still haven't seen anything on the market. So that was a really interesting period in time, and it looks like we're heading into another interesting period in time. Um, So seven years of the Home Cinema Podcast. Another anniversary uh, which is happening this year is Marantz, um, a very well-known brand. But a brand with a really interesting story, Steve. And the, I thought I knew the brand quite well, but actually going through your article that, that's on the front page at the minute uh, about their 60th year, quite interesting the way how that brand has developed and how it was split and then came back together again and so on. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. I thought, I, I thought Marantz was a Japanese company. Uh, I had no idea that it started in America. Uh, and, and the guy was, you know, Saul Marantz was the guy that started the company. I, I just... Assumed my, my experience of them as growing up was that they were a Japanese company and that, that was it. Um, until I did that piece, I had no concept of their real history. And it is absolutely fascinating. You know, this one guy in his basement, you know, who, who sort of thought that the current um, you know, range of amplifiers just weren't good enough. And so he spent you know, years in his basement building his own amp. Which his wife convinced him to start selling, and and the company grew from that, and you know, and it, and it sort of snowballed and eventually became a limited company with a big factory, and then um, they, they uh, it all went wrong, uh, based because of a of a, a tuner. They, they they developed this tuner and spent so much money on it that they weren't. It was costing more to bit like Pioneer here, I think, costing more to uh, to make it than they were actually getting from selling it. And uh, they sort of sunk everything into this thing, and and it, and it basically bankrupted the company, and he had to. Uh, to sell it to another company, a company called Superscope, who who make uh, stuff for cinemas, you know, super widescreen cinemas, and they wanted to have uh, you know some sort of uh, product they could produce, so they they bought it, uh, and then um, they developed uh, an operation in Japan. It was still uh, a subsidiary company owned by them, but they had sort of an operation in Japan because their idea was we'll use the name because up to that point, brands had been very high end, very expensive kit, sort of handmade in the states. The idea was to use the name, but make stuff cheap, more, more cheaply in in Japan. Um, so that's how they ended up with a subsidiary there. But then that company got into trouble as well, Superscope, and they ended up selling the the European part of Marantz to uh, Philips. This is in the 80s. So that, at one point in the 80s, there was Superscope who owned Marantz in North America, so US and Canada. You had Marantz Japan operating separately, and you had Philips using the brand name in Europe. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy situation. It wasn't until I think 2001 that, were, that, that all three elements were back together under one brand again. But yeah, uh, I, I mean, I really enjoyed writing that piece because it, it, it was absolutely fascinating. They were all up and down, you know, sort of a triumphs and disasters kind of story. Um, and uh, it was yeah, absolutely fascinating the, the history of the company. I'm, and I had no idea about most of it, to be honest. Uh, I have to say, I, I enjoyed Steve's piece uh, a great deal. Um, uh, it's a, a, a company I have a huge soft spot for. Uh, I worked very closely with them uh, in the early part of my my working career, and it must be said that um, it, oh, for, for the sake of convenience, I, I will label them as, as a, in part a Japanese house brand because for for the, the vast majority of of you know people listening and 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 for how how we we perceive them, that's what they are. They have 
in my humble opinion, perhaps contentiously, they've produced more covetable products across more price points and more categories than any of the other Japanese audio electronics manufacturers. There, I've said it. That includes Pioneer, that includes the Sonys of this world. They've made more products where I thought, I want one of those than, than, than any of the others. Um, it just uh, an understanding of Sonic's aesthetics and general desirability that I don't believe any of the other manufacturers have, have really managed to achieve in the same way. Well, what made me laugh uh, when I was researching it was that uh, um, obviously Philips, I mean, as everybody knows, Philips and Sony developed CD together in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, but of course, Philips weren't, weren't known as, a, um, as an audio brand at all. Um, so when they launched their first CD players in 83, um, they, were, they were branded Marantz because they had much more brand recognition in terms of the audio market. So I thought that was quite funny. It, it's littered with that because, again, uh, you know, years later when they were doing the, the in the same same effect, um, you know, Philips and Sony were putting a huge amount of effort into, into SACD. Sony more so in many ways than Philips. But once again, the iconic... Um, SACD player from that that point. Um, arguably, some would argue the Sony SED one, but it's incredibly rare. And um, with the greatest respect, Sony didn't always actually read any discs. Um, so you have uh, the Marantz SA one from the same period. I mean, it, once again, Marantz's actual input into SACD there was some, but it was again reasonably limited. But it, it's, if you like, was the iconic SACD player from the point where there was actually a genuine chance that it might be the, su- the successor to CD. I mean, obviously that wasn't quite how it panned out, <laughs> but um, yeah, I remember I remember the excitement at that point as well. And once again, it was another Marantz product that was iconic. And if anyone has uh, an SA one that they're using as a doorstop or or some other point of inertia, I, I, I'll take it off their hands for a reasonable fee. I, I could find <laughs> find space for it just because it's a lovely thing. I think SACD DVD audio was like the format war that nobody wanted and no one cared about, wasn't it? it really was. Yeah, I think that's fair. That, that was a, a format war for in miniature where both sides never cared enough to actually try and win it. <laughs> uh, so that's Morancy's uh, 60th anniversary. Steve's story is on the front page. Go and have a, a read of that. It is an interesting read. It is interesting to hear about that brand. Not the only brand that you went to see, Steve. Uh, you went to lovely Sorrento in Italy for... Uh, a launch event of Denon's products as well. Uh, obviously, DNM Group, Denon and Marantz. Uh, so, what what were Denon showing? Anything interesting? Well, it was interesting um, because I know we've just talk, we've talked about this in the past on previous uh, home cinema podcasts but about the the AVR market and how, how it's you know collapsed to a certain extent that people aren't buying big chunky receivers anymore and they, and they prefer more lifestyle orientated products and products that are going kind to of less imposing in their lounge, which I can understand. And both uh, both Denim and Marantz have tried to address that to a degree. So in the case of Denim, their new lineup, they're very much going for a, a more simplistic, sort of stripped-back approach to their receivers. Less connections on the rear, so they've ditched a lot of the legacy stuff that, frankly, shouldn't be there anyway. You don't need it. I mean, just stick some HDMI inputs, and that's about it. They did tell me the other reason they put a lot of that stuff in was because the customers sort of would moan if they didn't. But they've basically taken a decision on certainly some of the cheaper models, you know, that um avrs that they've, they've they've got very simplified um back panels so less inputs and, and more of the inputs you actually want um they, they've made the um speaker binding posts on the back of, of, the, of the, you know, the terminal um they made those in a, in a horizontal line so they're easy to get to 
uh, which I know that is a good thing because you know you know what it's like. Ed, I'm sure for you too, Phil. When you're trying to wire speaker cable up, it can be an absolute nightmare sometimes. Um, so they've made the um, the holes that you put the speaker cable in you know, directly at top of the, the terminal, so they're easy to access from above when you're wiring up something. Again, a good idea. They've um, simplified the GUI, made it flashier and, and more uh, more intuitive to use. They've made bigger buttons, bigger controls, bigger displays. They've basically made them, uh, you know, just easier and less imposing and, and frightening for, for the average punter. And I think that's a valid point. I think that, that AVRs have gone to one extreme from you know, just being about audio. They've gone to the other extreme of being, uh, you know, trying to throw in every bell and whistle. They, I mean, sometimes when we're reviewing these things, it takes ages just to go through all the features on them. And I guarantee you, 90% of those features will never get used. Um, so I, I think Dan are probably right to sort of think, hang on a minute, maybe we, that's the wrong idea. Maybe we need to use something that's easy to use. What people like these days is something that looks nice, is intuitive and easy and works. You know, kind of the Apple model, if you like. That's what they built their business on, and that's really what they need to be doing in AVRs. They may make them less imposing and less frightening to people. They might be more inclined to buy them. Marantz, on the other hand, had done something which I also really like. In fact, so much so that I actually ended up buying one for my lounge because it was a great idea, which is they've, they've made the slimline AVRs. They're like half the size, half the height of the classic big, chunky AVR. And again, you know, it's it's much more attractive and less imposing in a lounge than a, than a great big old old school AVR. So I think both companies are try, are, are aware of the fact that um, you know the market's struggling, uh, not just for um, you know, people's changing taste, but also I think because of economics. Uh, and and they are trying to address that by um, by, produce, by targeting uh, the, the consumer in, in different ways. And also, I, what came quite apparent to me was that. Denon's very much regarded as the sort of twenty to thirty, to sort of twenty to forty age bracket product line, and so it's like cheaper, um, you know, more aimed at sort of the younger audience. And then Marantz, you know, partly I expect because of, of of the brand history and the name itself, is very much the, the higher end stuff, uh, more expensive. Uh, you know, so so the the um, the current um, Denon flagship, I think it's the four five two zero. That's their flagship AVR. You know, they, they haven't really got the sort of like the massive A1 that they used to make and that kind of thing. Um, they've they've kind of stripped it down a little bit, whereas they still are doing that on the Marantz side. I mean, it is you know, the same group as we said, and they do they do share some core um, technology, but obviously they do diverge at a certain point. And and, and Denon clearly was being aimed more at sort of the younger, slightly lower end of the market, and uh, Marantz uh, the older higher end of the market if you like the whole avr thing is quite interesting steve in it and i know it's something that you're working on at the minute in terms of an article and that is is there a future for the avr because we're certainly moving away from traditional home cinema as it was where you know you had to have the screen in the center of the wall you had to have your five speakers your two well one or two subwoofers and we're moving away from that mainly because people are far more design conscious when it comes to their living spaces now. A lot of it is the slim TV. They don't want the speakers on show. So the last thing they want is a four or five grand first class AVR. And that market has vanished in the last few years. In fact, the only amplifiers I can remember are the AVC1 in its various uh, updates and so on. And they added different letters to the, to the model number. Uh, depending on what your upgrade was from Denon, and the Susano from uh, Pioneer. And we haven't seen any flagships of that standard. I suppose Onkyo still do a flagship, but it's it's not in the four or five grand area. No, not, not at all. Um, it, it looks like that, that sector of the market has died. It's It's gone. You can no longer, unless you buy secondhand, 
buy a flagship AVR at that price point? Uh, that's, a, that's a very very good point, Phil. Uh, I think uh, at that price point now, what people are doing, and, and I can understand why they're so keen to keep the customer installers happy, because clearly they are the people that are installing uh, AVR still. I mean, I, I think the, the average guy in in the street is looking for something slightly more lifestyle friendly in their in their lounge. But if you're doing a home cinema installation, they're more likely to actually use a, a big AVR or something along those lines. Maybe it's a you know, pre-pro with with amplification, but there's, that's going to be the case with a home cinema install. Hence, that's why it's still an important market for people like Denon and Morantz, and I'm sure Onkyo as well. But yeah, you're right. There, there isn't the big sort of four or five grand AVR anymore. If you're talking about price point, now you're talking about buying some sort of processor, you know, like like maybe the data set or something like that. Obviously, that's a lot more than four or five grand, but that thing. Or yeah, Anthem, try, seven, try 17 no, no. grand for the data Or maybe the, the Anthem um, uh, DV, is it DV2. Yeah, yeah. That could be an example. So that, that's what the, that's that's kind of become the the new higher end, if you like, option. And in terms of you know those big, massive, high end AVRs, you just don't see them at all anymore. There certainly speak- was nothing like that on show uh, with Den and Morantz. It was all very much even their top end stuff was was still uh, at what I would call an affordable price point. But from my perspective, doesn't that? I mean, that at least to me makes makes perfect sense i mean i speak as someone that obviously at one stage was 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 doing the marketing for 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 one of the companies producing one of these these giant avrs and I, it just always struck me when you looked at um i mean the, the case in point uh when it was working for, for yamaha we had the z11 at that point um and it was a substantial sum of money it wasn't quite as high up as some of the uh, the pioneer units in particular but it was still not not a, not an inconsequential sum and at the same time um, I remember that we sold um, a Z9, which had just sort of come up from uh, from uh, from the the old Yamaha or AV um, organisation, and I think we I think it struggled its way to about seven hundred and fifty quid. And only two years previously, this had been a, a multiple thousand pound product. And at that point, it just sort of struck me that if you are doing AV at that level. Um, the, the pre-pro just makes a huge amount of sense in so much as you are, um, you know, at the very least, you, you invest in the power amp that suits. And then all you're doing is, is changing the electronics front end as and when there is a requirement to do so. And you aren't binning your entire investment each time. Um, the, the sad truth of the matter is that by the nature of the technical advances that we seem to insist on as, as you know, as enthusiasts and a group of people, you, the, the, the rate at which you're junking ferociously expensive technology is just unsustainable. It has no parallels in two channel, for example, where, you know, the, the, the rate that, you know, the, the number of amplifiers at this price point and, and at commensurately higher price points is, has, has shown no such sort of level of degradation because you can buy it in the knowledge that it will still function perfectly happily in five, 10, 20 years time. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, I mean, if you think about the, the time that we've been doing this podcast for and how, how much the uh, audio codecs have changed, uh, you know, going back from, I mean, we were talking about this on a previous podcast, you know, back in the old days of Laserdisc, you had, you know, you had Dolby Pro Logic, then you went to Dolby Digital and, and, and DTS on, on Laserdisc, Dolby Digital DTS on, on DVD. You know, now we're into Blu-ray and, and fully lossless audio with DTS HD Master Audio and, and Dolby True HD. Those kind of things do necessitate having to replace a kit. And, and if it's a massive expense, I mean, I've, anecdotally, I used to have uh, AVRs um, um, you know, years ago, back in the sort of early days of Dolby ProLogic. Um, and when um, things like THX came along and, and then um, particularly uh, 
Dolby Digital and, and DTS. I decided, because I had a dedicated home cinema, that I, I would go with a, a pre-pro option instead. And I had a Meridian 565 with, with amplification. And that could be upgraded with an EEPROM. So I didn't have to worry about sudden changes in, you know, someone bringing along DTS and I couldn't play it because I had to buy a whole new AVR. Um, when I moved to Hong Kong and I was in a small apart, smaller apartment, um, you know, all that kit just wasn't really an option anymore. And then it was a lifestyle choice. I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll end up buying a Denon ABC A1, I think, or something, I don't know, A11. Um, you know, because it had DTS ES, which was new at the time, and I wanted that. Plus, it was a more convenient package. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, then, then HDMI comes along. And you think, oh, I need to get HDMI connections. I mean, there are so many changes, particularly on the video side. And I, and I guess those things like, uh, you know, soundtrack, audio, audio codecs are essentially, essentially an offshoot of video. Um, you know, there's so much changes going on in that that you, you end up having to keep replacing kit that is very expensive. Whereas if you're just doing two-channel audio, you can be listening to the same record you've been listening to for the last 70 years. Um, whereas on the sort of AVR side, it's constantly changing. Um, and therefore, unless you have some way of upgrading you know, equipment without uh, having to completely replace it, you can understand why people were reticent to spend five or six grand on an AVR that might be out of, out of, out of date in a year's time. You're obviously looking at this subject. You're putting together an article. You're speaking to people like uh, Onkyo, Yamaha and, and so on and trying to get some input from from the manufacturers and where they see the market going and obviously you sat down with with Den and Marantz when you were with them and, and discussed the same thing so where do you see the future of the AVR it, is it really going to be a lifestyle product as as we move on because that's what the demand is nowadays and if you're wanting a serious home theater you're going to go with uh, a processor and amplification I, I think that that's the only way it can go I think if, if, if it wants to survive in any kind of viable format um, the AVR has to adapt adapt or die basically it, it's uh, uh, people don't want that big black ugly box in the corner of their lounge um and they don't want something with millions of buttons on the front and loads of things on the back and it's just it, they, they want things that you know you plug and play it's simple and intuitive and easy and looks slick and cool and there's not I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't do that with an avr with, with, with modern digital amplification i mean you could make it much smaller you can you can make it look slicker and cooler, you know. Maybe with a, a, a I'm just off the top of my head thinking, you know, like a black glass front with touch pan, touch sensitive panels, you know, nice readout displays. There's nothing you can you, know, you can do things to make it look more modern. At the moment, the let's, let's be honest, the classic AVR hasn't changed its look really. I mean, doing that article about Marantz, you know, I realised for the last thirty years they looked exactly the same. You know, one big knob on one side, one big knob on the other, display in the middle, flap that comes down with some buttons behind it. And that's that's a classic AVR since time immemorial. So you know, if it, if it wants to survive, it's going to have to adapt. It needs to become easier and, le and less daunting for people. Uh, it's in, it's interesting you say that because as you're saying that, I'm looking at my Onkyo, which is about four or five years old, and it's one of the big AVRs, one of the big last big AVRs. And you look at the new release releases from that company, and I really can't tell the difference. No, they're identical, aren't they? Yeah, and it's. And and what is the difference? You know, what differences are they making? Um, certainly, with a company like Onkyo, it seems to be how many stickers you can get on the front of all well, that, the technology that's, that's, that's what on I was board. talking about one extreme to the other. They they yeah. they've panicked a little bit, or maybe because you know they think, well, we're not selling as many as we want to, so they just thrown everything in the kitchen sink into there. And I think people look at those all those buttons and stickers and think, well, it scares them. Yeah. I mean, you don't need you don't need an old volume control. Who 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 changes the volume? manually anymore i use the remote <laughs> control i've never touched a volume knob on my amplifier well um, remote control or your ipad 
Exactly. That's the way things are going. Now you've got your iPad too. So you can control that thing without touching it. So why bother having those big knobs on the front at all? Have a yeah. sleek, sleek, flat front, um, you know, with touch sensitive panels or, you know, you, you know, a nice dis- or make it all display at the front. There's so many things you can do yeah. to make it look totally different. And that's when you say, if it looks space aging cool, people will buy it. Yeah. Once you get around the obvious other problem with an AVR, which is that, you know, and that applies to any kind of multi-channel audio system in the home. Once you get past the sort of the partner issue of you putting 11.6 speakers <laughs> in the lounge, which I'm sure is going to get some resistance from most most wives and girlfriends. Um, so, so that's the other um, that's the other sort of side of it, really, isn't it? Is, is the fact that people's lifestyles are changing to the point where they aren't really, um, you know, TV isn't really the centre of the room anymore. You know, in the way it used to be in the old days. Uh, much as TV manufacturers would like it to be the centre of your life, I don't think it is. I think it's kind of, you know, just one other device now amongst many. Um, people listen to stuff on the move, watch stuff on the move. You know, kids are watching on the laptops, watching on their iPhones, watching on their iPads. So, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to justify, if that's the case, having, you know, seven or five speakers in a subwoofer in there when maybe it's not going to get used that much. That's the AVR. What, what's your point of view, dear listeners? What do you think? Uh, send us some feedback. You can email us, podcast.avforums.com, uh, or leave your feedback in the podcast forum under this podcast. Is the AVR dead? And look out for Steve's thoughts, opinions, and obviously the thoughts and opinions of manufacturers as well as to where they think things are going for the future of the AVR. Uh, Steve, you said um, that manufacturers uh, would like to think that the TV is still the centre attraction of the room. Uh, that's maybe not the case, but certainly Sharp. Do you remember Sharp? They, they've, they've been quiet for a number of years now in the UK market, but they've just announced a 90-inch LED TV, uh, the largest uh, in Europe, for 12 grand. How does that take you? Uh, not at all. I, I really don't understand that market. I don't understand why people would spend £12,000 on a 90-inch TV when you can buy a projector that will probably look better uh, for two or three grand and have an even bigger screen. Um, it just seems... I'm not really sure who, who those TVs are aimed at. Americans. That's who it's Well, no, at. but even Americans, it's... yeah, okay, they have bigger rooms and more space. Yeah. But why don't they just buy a projector then? You're going to get more bang for your buck, frankly. But it's, it, 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 was, it was one you... of the things that we saw when we were going around... I, I keep forgetting, is, is it Fry's, the big store that we keep yeah, going? Yeah, yeah, we were in Fry's, yeah. Um, now, when you're in Fry's, there was no 32-inch, no 40-inch. Uh, I don't even think it was any 46-inch screens. It was all 50 and above in their TV area. So that seems to be the market that they're aiming at. And and they seem to have had quite a bit of success. They had a 70 and an 80 out last year. They, they even brought it to the UK. But I think they had quite a bit of success in the US market with the large screens because they were putting them out in large sizes, but they weren't charging heaven and earth for them. They were right. actually quite cheap to get a big screen. You could get a 60-inch screen for something like 1,300 quid. Well, I reviewed a 60-inch Sharp last year, uh, which was retailing you know, for a grand. Now, a grand for a 60-inch TV is actually pretty good value, I've got to say. But And they've definitely made a niche for themselves in, in the big screen market, haven't they? Sharp, have clearly, that's clearly been their intention, is, is to make a niche for themselves as the, the big screen manufacturer. And I think they've been quite successful in that sense, going with 60, 70, 80, and now... 90-inch TVs. And yeah, no question, screen sizes are getting bigger. Even in the UK now, I, I would say that your average screen size is probably about 42 inches, where it used to be 32. Um, and, you know, 50 inches is probably reaching a sweet spot. And, and you know, I've had a 65-inch in recently. And, um, you know, even there's a relatively large screen. I, I got used to it. The funny thing is that no matter how big the screen is, you do get used to it very quickly. 
You mean when I had that 84-inch LG 4K in before Christmas? When it arrived, I thought, that's ridiculous. Within a day, it was it was fine. When it went and I put the 50-inch Kuro back up again, it looked like a portable. It looked ridiculous. It was just, you, know, you do adapt quite quickly to a bigger screen size, I have to say. It's one of the things as a TV reviewer um, that is quite funny. I used to get a lot of 32s in and I've got a 50, 50 Kuro. And it was always the case that you would spend uh, two weeks with this 32-inch TV, then pack it up, send it back, and put the Kuro back up. And it was, it was you know, that effect of the huge screen again. But then after a day, you got used to it again. Was, wasn't yeah. it any, any issue? But my, my argument would be, if you're talking about 90-inch screen size, then frankly, you're better off buying a projector. And, and for, tw- and, cheaper. And for all 12 I would grand. say, Steve, is if you have a look, uh, take some time out and fantasize about winning the Euro Millions. Ha- go, if you open up Right Move and, and put the uh, searching for houses at the, at the footballer level, you will find these screens not often the super large houses actually have generally have a, a dedicated install somewhere it's a, it's a selling point but nonetheless these large screens by which i mean 65 and above anything between 65 and 100 they are and i i use the word you know only partly in jest littered around these these super properties they've sort of if you like everyone that they are i completely agree with what you say about a projector but it's a case of someone who isn't actually that interested in in the in the whole av item av concept as a whole that not only is it reasonably convincing for film they can turn bbc breakfast on without darkening the room or anything similar to that and it will still function in exactly the same way they are a fit and forget item for the the rich and indolent and you know fair play if if sharp make money out of it then then good luck to them it it, it it's important to view these things from outside the prism of dedicated AV use. They, they, they exist to fulfill a requirement of, I want an awfully big screen, but I don't want any of the caveats of projector usage. So, so it's aimed at the uh, custom install market, which is also aimed at the people with more money than sense who don't even appreciate what they've got. Yeah, well, I mean, look at... Your, Abra- your words, not mine. Well, look, look, at, <laughs> look at Abramovich's uh, yacht. He's got three 153-inch 4K Panasonic plasmas. Uh, which will set you back a cool five hundred grand a piece. So when you're getting into that level of stuff, you, yeah, yeah, I get your point. Yeah, Ed. twelve grand's not much money actually at that point. <laughs> it's quite quite cheap. It's throwaway, isn't but, it? But for the average guy in the street, you know, if you want Steve's advice here, if you're going to spend three or four grand on a big screen telly, consider getting a projector. Assuming you obviously you can put it in, and you don't have you know, yeah, well, obviously there are issues with screens and if, everything if else. You, if you take the sharp at twelve grand, so let's break down the twelve grand. So you're going to get a projector at say roughly the five grand mark, yep, and spend the rest on the screen, mm. and you're going to go for something that's a light rejection screen, um, so you can use it in the living room. Something like a DMP Supernova or what's the other one that's that's doing the rounds at the minute with the name? Black Diamond. Black Diamond. Something like that. When, when you see a sim on one of those screens with all the lights up, you're actually still getting a really impressive image. And at 12 grand, you could get yourself a really good screen and a really good projector at the five grand mark. And probably, you know, you could go bigger than 90 inches. Yeah, easily, I'd have thought. I mean, obviously, there are other factors to consider, like, you know, what kind of screen, where is it going to fit, would it be drop-down, all that sort of stuff, and where would you put the projector and everything. But, you know, when you consider you can get a drop-down screen and projector from the ceiling, it doesn't take up any space at all, in fact, less than a massive TV would. I just I just always find it strange that people will, will, will pay considerable amounts of money for a very large screen TV without even considering the, co- the, 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 the thought of um, 
yeah, getting but, projector instead. I mean, for me, it's project. I, I, you know, for me, TVs are for watching TV, as in you know, breakfast news and <laughs> uh, you know that sort of stuff. Movies, yeah, but you're, big you're, screen. You're not representative of, or, or well, the population. Well, probably not. Though, so. I'm probably representative of most people listening to this podcast, though. <laughs> But, but but then They're again, you, you you see people spending four grand on a, on a TV and they don't even consider getting it calibrated. You know that that, that just me, that, that just does not make sense to me. You know, if you're buying a TV at that price point, you know, ten percent of your budget, not even ten percent of your budget, get calibrated. Five percent of the budget just to get it to make sure it's performing optimally yeah. and you're getting the best possible picture and seeing exactly what you're supposed to see. Yeah, I never really understood. You know, if you're buying a ZT65, for example, which is an awesome television, absolutely incredible TV. You know, probably the best I've ever seen um, so far. Get it calibrated. <laughs> You know, the, the, the expense is minimal and the results are absolutely um, jaw-dropping. Yeah. Not saying it's not good, not calibrated, but if you're going to spend that kind of money, you want it to deliver every last ounce of detail and, and accuracy in the image and lovely, beautiful natural colours. Yeah, and it's a lot easier to get a 60-inch a through the door than a 90-inch through the door. I should imagine. Although I did manage to get the 84-inch in, in my lounge, which I thought was a miracle. <laughs> actually i never thought it was going to fit so that's sharps uh, 90 inch led tv whether we get that in for review god knows i think steve you're the only one that could probably take that and even then i think it'd be a squeeze to get it uh, send, send a big uh, send a big delivery man that's what <laughs> there's a little tiny guy there to pick up the 84 inch lg and had a half time when we saw the size of that tv <laughs> so uh just to wrap up it's one of those companies that i, I guess I was really quite anti for a long time until I actually started using their products. And, and now I think um, in terms of ease of use, in terms of reliability, in terms of things just working, uh, Apple, they had their WWDC, uh, which is the Worldwide uh, Developers Conference. Uh, it was running at the same time as E3. It was on the same morning uh, on the Monday where uh, all the big press conferences were happening for E3 as well. So it, it kind of got buried a little bit unless you are really into Apple. But some interesting things were launched there, Steve. You put a, an article up on the front page. A lot of accusations recently at Apple that they can't innovate anymore. You know, now that Steve Jobs is gone, everybody seems to be writing them off. Even the stock, stock market seems to be writing them off at the minute. You know, where is your innovative new products? Where's your innovative software? Um, and they went some way towards uh, battling that that feedback that they were getting um, from certain sectors where they were saying that, you know, Apple's finished. They actually came up with some really interesting products and software. Yeah, I mean, obviously they announced uh, iOS 7, uh, which is going to be the, the new operating system for obviously the iPhone and iPad, iPod as well, I guess, which, which looked, looked uh, you know, clearly, uh, I don't, I, th I think that over the last couple of years, because it's an open platform, Android has, um, you know, has been slightly more innovative than Apple have been uh, of late. Um, and, and clearly Apple have realized that, and I think they have upped their game to a certain degree. Pinched a few things from, from the Android platform as well, but so, so what? I mean, everyone's talking to everybody else. I think that's just the nature of, of electronics, really. Uh, I don't hold that against them anymore. I would hold it against somebody else. But um, yeah, I mean, they definitely, uh, I, like, you, like you, Phil, when I first uh, bought an Apple product, um, I bought a MacBook, MacBook Pro about seven years ago now, and I'd obviously only ever used Windows up to that point. If initially, it was quite difficult, the transition. I was just so used to Windows, I found it really frustrating and slightly annoying. And gradually, I realized that, for me at least, Apple's approach was far more intuitive, far more, uh, which just, was just better and easier, and everything worked. And because it's a closed infrastructure, you don't get viruses, and you don't have problems with anything not working or anything else. 
and I, and I gradually got used to that environment and used to that kind of ecosystem. Uh, and, and obviously other things went into it. So then I got an iPhone and an iPod and um, oh, I thought I got an iPod first and an iPhone and an iPad, Apple TV, you know, and it, it all just works together and it's all quite cool. And look, you know, but going back to the AVR argument, it, it looks slick. It looks like the future. It looks cool. Um, you know, and I really enjoyed it. So, so um, recently having to use, <laughs> no names here, but when Phil gave me a laptop to use for a bit, which is Windows, Windows 7, I think it was. Uh, no, I just hated every second of it. I just found it completely like going back 100 years and I never wanted to ever touch one again. Um, now, that's just my experience. But for Apple to survive in the way that they have been recently, you know, to remain as big as they are and dominant as they are, they, they do need to innovate. They do need to keep pushing the envelope. And, and for my money, um, from what they've announced so far on iOS 7 and also the new operating system, um, OS, uh, OS X 10.9, Mavericks, which is a bit of a silly name. I, I preferred the like mountain lion and so leopard myself. But bring and what I always like about Apple is because they're essentially a a um, hardware company. All the all the uh, software is really cheap. It's not like Windows, where obviously they are a software company and they keep making you buy the same things over and over again um, with some minor changes uh, for a lot of money. Uh, I, I actually quite like the fact that, that Apple's the other way around, and you have to you have to pay through the nose for the kit. But once you got the kit, I mean, my, my, my MacBook Pro has been working happily now. On I think I'm on Snow Leopard. I didn't don't think it would work with Mountain Lion, but I've got Snow Leopard on it. Um, you know, that's seven years old and it's still um, powering away quite nicely. Um, yeah, they, what else have they announced? The new MacBook Air, which I've got to say looked very, very saucy, um, you know, super slim. That, yeah, that, I think that was the only update, though, was a faster CPU, so you get a little bit better um, battery life. So you're going to get 12 hours on the 13-inch. Yeah. You're going to get about seven hours compared to five hours on the on the 11-inch. Now, I bought one when the first came out because it looked gorgeous. I went looking for a netbook. I, was, I think it was when I was going to Japan. And I wanted to, because I had that laptop that I gave you, which was an editing laptop, and it weighs a ton. That I, is an understatement, <laughs> by the way. I mean, it's not a laptop unless you want to crush your I, lap. I wanted to have a netbook, and I went and looked at the netbooks, and I played about with them, and they were so slow. And, you know, the standard of software on them was, was not great, and it took forever for stuff to happen. And here was a, a Mac 11-inch MacBook Air sitting next to them. It was double the price. I bought the Air because it was super slick, super fast. You weren't waiting around for things to open. You weren't waiting forever for it to boot up. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And, and from there, I've gone on to a MacBook Pro with Retina, and I've got an Apple TV, I've got an iPad, I've got an iPhone. Like you say, it all works. Um, but, but the interesting thing with their products is the fact that you pay through the nose for it. And I think that's where people are resentful or get resentful about it, about Apple and about their products, because... They're not cheap. You know, an iPhone 5 will set you back 600 quid for the base phone if you're buying it SIM 3. Um, a lot of people buy contract, but I prefer to buy things. That's a lot of money for a phone. That MacBook Pro with Retina, uh, and I had it spec'd up for video editing, two and a half grand. It's a lot of money for a laptop. Yeah, two and a half grand, but it, it just, you know, it, it kills the one you gave me, which was equally as expensive wasn't it yeah and, and yeah. massively specced up yeah and but, I, i've I mean, also got apple just murdered it and i've also got a custom built pc desktop pc here which we spent an off probably about double the money on and the macbook pro with final cut is is i find it actually quicker to work on that than i do on the pc and i've kind of relegated the the pc to more advanced edit work 
if I want to do something quick like the video reviews and stuff, it's done on the, the Apple. Um, but I think that I think the whole thing was that, that when Steve Jobs died, I think people were out to get Apple, or a certain sector were out to get Apple and say, right, well, where are you going to go now? They they put down the gauntlet. Are you going to innovate? Are you going to be able to to keep this up? And when you look at companies, um, any company like Sony or or any of the big corporations, they'll have their heyday where they have really interesting products like the Walkman which made Sony and the Trinitron TVs that they did the old CRTVs that was their golden period in my eyes and I think with Apple I think we're kind of tailing off on their golden period I think that's probably certainly. true I mean no company's going to be at the top forever I mean what goes up you know, inevitably ultimately comes down um, I, 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 you know I, I think there's still plenty of fight left in them yeah I think with with the passing of Steve Jobs the company, uh, yeah, I mean, but then again, you think about it, Apple have changed the way we live over the last five to 10 years, literally changed the way we live. Um, you know, one man did almost in, in a sense change the world. And I'm, I'm, I'll admit to being a bit of an Apple fanboy, but even if you're not, you have to admit the fact that, that a lot of their products have been massively influential on everybody else. I mean, when they first announced the tab, you know, the iPad, I thought that's ridiculous. Going to want that now? Everyone's got one, and, and they are, you know, they pretty much killed the laptop um, in terms of just using it for things like surfing and, uh, and the net and that sort of stuff. Yeah, they again, it's it's just it's it's staggering how influential and successful they have been. Um, and you're right, that can't they can't stay like that forever. Um, but I, I still think that they've got some life in them yet, and we'll see some more innovation out of them going forward. I mean, this this did feel a bit like a sort of the, uh, the WWDC, the, the, their worldwide developers conference. Um, you know, some of the stuff they announced was, was yeah, it was just tinkering, wasn't it? Like you say, the, the MacBook Air was just a, like different processors, so it lasted. The battery lasted a bit longer. The MacBook, the Mac Pro, uh, like we, or the iBin, as some people have been calling it, does a bit look a bit like a bin. But I mean, it is spec to the eyeballs, isn't it? In terms of things like 4K, you can handle 4K video without breaking a sweat. I'm sure you'd love one. Um, I'd, I'd, at this moment in time, I'd give my right hand for one. <laughs> I, I really would because I, um, that's that's what they do really well. And ask any professional um, who uh, edits or does graphic design or any kind of creative work, um, especially on the audio side as well, with Pro Tools and Logic and so on. Um, a lot of people do their work in that. A lot of people do their work in the software. Um, we've been crying out. Well, I say we. I think the creative uh, community have been crying out for an update of the Mac Pro because it seemed to be that the Apple kind of forgot about the Pro users, and and it was the Pro users that kept Apple going in the early years, and and it could be argued that it was the, it was the Pro users that kept uh, Apple going for for a long time while they were building the the iPad, the, the iPod, and the iPad, and so on, and and I think they got too tied up in the consumer side of things and and let's face it when they're selling millions and millions and millions of these devices and they have billions of dollars in the bank who's going to blame them but it's nice to see them giving something back to the creatives again uh, with the mac pro it looks odd um until you see it in the flesh i think it's it's it's, i think it's going to be i don't think it's going to be a hard sell for them but I don't think it was enough information in what they gave us at the time about you know how it's spec'd up, how it's going to work, how you're going to work externally because in, you know internally they've they've taken away the the PCI boards and stuff, so you're going to have to work external with with other devices. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. But that that one product there, I thought, yeah, I could use that. That would be 
<laughs> I think that would be a, a, a Darth Vader's ashtray. I've seen it described as. Well, obviously, I'm not quite so committed um, a devotee uh, as you two. Uh, huge fan of iOS. Um, I used uh, Macs professionally for some years whilst uh, working full time on the magazines. Um, I'm source ambivalent. I find enough things to drive me, get me very angry about both operating systems. I am pleased that Apple is continuing to, to push, though, because it encourages uh, development in all in, in, in all corners. Um, the only thing I will say is uh, it's it, it's a it's a difficult one. The the the, the, the I mean, looking at the I was looking at the MacBook Pro. I've been looking at some of the the, the sorry, not MacBook Pro. Sorry, the um, the Darth Vader's flip top bin, and it's it's one of those things where I'm looking at it and um, I, I hope it has the sort of desired halo product effect that um, you know a product of this nature should have. But uh, uh, the very fact that they've chosen something which is a right pig to take photos of. Um, may or may not hinder them in that regard, and you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we you know we record these podcasts, and then uh, you you go off and edit them, and it, it's something that I, it never gets touched on. But obviously, it's a huge amount of processing power. Um, it's not a cheap item, um, like most Apple items. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be as influential as some of its predecessors were. Let, let's put it like that. I, I'm not not so sure. I mean, I'm I'm pleased that there are you know continuing developments to iOS, which of which I'm a very keen user. Um, but I don't know. It, it goes back to uh, I don't I don't think it should be tied entirely to the demise of uh, of Steve Jobs in this regard. It's not a natural position for a company to stay innovative all, as all the way through, as you've just pointed out. Um, but there wasn't anything here that had me, uh, you know, rooting through behind the sofa for, to, to find money to buy it. Let's put it like that. It, it's good to see that they're innovating. It's in, to an extent. It's good to see they're releasing new products. It's good to see that they're looking after corners of the market, which, as you say, seemed a bit neglected. But from my less committed perspective I, I i i've i've watched it with a sort of resigned disinterest i'm afraid it, it that nothing there is has has left me wanting to chop in anything i've got here and replace it straight away steve don't invite him on any other podcast Ooh, well what <laughs> can well, i, I say now do i it's the last one so you're fired ed <laughs> all i would say to you is that um i am one of those rare group of lunatics that buys pcs that cost macbook money um, the one I'm recording this podcast on at the moment is seven and a half years old. Its replacement is downstairs. It's just very important to compare like for like. I, I emphasize that if the editing laptop weighs more than the moon, that's clearly a problem. Um, I just feel in, in terms of certain aspects of design and certainly in aspects of um, you know, design it, it sort of integrity and, and certainly the ability to withstand punishment. There is, there is, once you get to the sort of money that Apple's products cost, there are products out there which do things which are, which are quite extraordinary. And I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you spend as much time writing on a computer as I do, there is absolutely nothing to touch the keyboard of a ThinkPad. They spent so much time working out what keyboard debounce should actually have in terms of feedback to the user there's nothing that gets close to it sorry there i've said it so there we go that brings us to the end of the home cinema podcast the last home cinema podcast and as you've just witnessed there's already some technology starting to creep in there um so we're going to move to a weekly format from uh, july so july the third is the first and then every wednesday after that you will have a brand new 
AV Forums podcast where we discuss games, movies, home cinema, tech and everything else that's happening uh, in the world of technology. Hopefully it'll be up to date. Hopefully we'll get more of you involved in the community. We'd love you to send us emails or feedback, talk about products or areas of the industry that you really want to know about. Let us know. Also, we'd hopefully start to add in some tutorial stuff in, in there as well about different aspects of things. I mean, the big hot potato at the minute is uh, subwoofers. How many should you have? Uh, lots of arguments happening at the moment about that, uh, as well as other issues like like 4K, uh, you know, pixel density, viewing distance. Is it going to make a difference? Lots of negative comments about 4K. Why do I want to spend that much money uh, when I'm sitting 10 feet back from the screen, I'm not going to see any difference, or am I? What's your thoughts on that? Let's pick this up again when we start the weekly podcast. So it's podcast at avforums.com for your comments, or leave them under this podcast in the podcast forum. So all I need to do now is thank Ed. Cheers, Phil. And Steve. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Ed. And thank you, everybody, for listening to my inane drivel. <laughs> yeah, it is a punishment, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something nasty there, but I won't. So this is Phil Hinton. First time. <laughs> so this is Phil Hinton saying thanks very much for listening. We'll see you on Navy Forums podcast every Wednesday. Until then, take care, and we'll see you again soon.